All right, I want to start off this morning uh, focusing a little bit further on peace now from Scripture. I'm going to start with a poem that was written by a woman named Mary Elizabeth Coleridge. Uh, She passed away in 1907. She was in her mid-40s. I understand that it was from complications from appendicitis, so she passed away earlier than what otherwise might be uh, expected. She was a poet and a novelist, so she wrote several novels that were very well received. She was also a friend of Jenny Lind, who I really don't have this in my notes, but I remember reading that, and Jenny Lind is one of my absolute favorite stories. She was called the Swedish Nightingale. Now I'm totally rabbit trailing. This is a bad idea. But uh, she was hugely popular. Like in her day, Jenny Lind was a hugely popular singer, and she gave it all up. And when they asked her, why did, why did you give up? I mean, she's like a rock star, but they weren't singing rock music back then. And she said, well, when she realized, looking, I think she was being interviewed like on a beach or something, or she saw a sunset, and she said, when I realized I was, I was thinking less about God's beauty, you know, because of my singing, I knew I had to give it up. Like, there's something more important than all the popularity that the world has to offer, all the accolades, you know, all the notoriety. It was causing her to lose her, her faith, her, her adoration, her worship of God, and she realized she had to give it up. So Mary was a, an, a, at least an acquaintance of hers. She wrote at least one little Christmas song or poem, Just a little poem that's very appropriate at Christmas. I'm going to give you the first four lines, and then I'll give you the last two lines. It's very short. It's not the kind of a poem that seems uh, real syncopated. Uh, It's not terribly easy to read, but a poem such as as it is. It It starts like this. I saw a stable, low and very bare, a little child in a manger. The oxen knew him, had him in their care. To many was a stranger. Now, that's not scripture. Uh, I'm not here to suggest I don't want to offend Hannah. I don't know that there were oxen there. Uh, what's that? Oh, I don't know. From whenever. You have, yes, any rate. <laughs> and and I, even if there were animals there, scripture doesn't say that they knew that this was the Lord of glory or that somehow in their own way they, they worshipped or gave recognition of that fact. It's just a poem. But it's interesting, uh, her take that uh, the oxen knew him, but to many was a stranger. We don't, do know that Christ came into his own and his own received him not. And to the world, uh, for the most part, apart from exceptions of grace, he was a stranger. But then she ends with the last two lines, which are juxtaposed in a more interesting way yet. She then ends with these lines. The safety of the world was lying there and the world's danger. The safety of the world was lying there and the world's danger. Now, where we were last week and what we've already seen again this week, so far as what the angels told the shepherds, they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The earth's peace the safety of the world is somehow tied up in that little child that was born in Bethlehem and laid in a manger. Born to Mary, Joseph accompanying her, shepherds coming to recognize the fact 
somehow the world's peace and safety is tied up in that little babe. And yet, at the same time, the world's danger, the world's sin is being exposed by that baby in a manger. Both peace and danger somehow are tied up in the birth of that little child. And I'm going to tell you something that you've heard, I'm sure, many times if you've been in church any length of time. Undoubtedly, I'm not going to be the first person to suggest to you that at least one of the reasons why Christmas is so popular, and Christmas is popular, there are probably more Christmas songs written than certainly are written about the resurrection. And yet the resurrection, in some sense, is the culmination It's a crescendo that far surpasses the fact that Christ came. He didn't just come, he came to save. And his salvation required his death on a cross, Good Friday, and it required his resurrection from the grave, and even his ascension into heaven 40 days after. So there are how many songs do we have about the ascension? How many songs do we have about resurrection? It's kind of disappointing, but there are so many songs about Christmas. So many songs. People love Christmas. And one of the reasons why it's so popular is because there's nothing terribly dangerous about a baby in a manger. And you've heard that before. He doesn't stay a baby in a manger. He winds up growing up. It's of necessity. All babies grow up. But for this baby to bring peace, to bring forgiveness, to bring salvation requires he must necessarily grow up. But once he grows up, he becomes something more of a wild card. He becomes something not quite as safe as a baby laid in a manger. And so, as that story unfolds, people begin falling off and losing interest in the story. When Jesus grows up, he does things that offend people. He offends important people. He offends people with power and influence. He offends people that can hurt you. When Jesus grows up, he teaches things. He says things. He says things and teaches things that are offensive, that people find offensive, that important people find offensive, that leaders find people that can hurt you can uh, are offended by what Jesus teaches. But between those two events, it doesn't just, it's not a, a slow transition or even a slow fade. It's kind of an abrupt start because for the first 30 years of Jesus' life, he lives in relative obscurity and anonymity. We did a book a number of years ago. It's one of my all-time favorite books, Anonymous, by Alicia Brick Collet. It's a terrific book about how Jesus lived these anonymous years. We don't know the backstory. I don't think he was hurting anybody. I don't think he was offending people by what he said. He wasn't offending people by what he did. And he did those things intentionally. He knew it was the Sabbath when he healed. He knew it was the the Sabbath when he said the things that he said. He intended it to be that way. But for 30 years, he wasn't hurting people. He was, and, and by offending them, they weren't taking offense at what he said. But in order for us to experience peace, there must be that transition. He can't stay a baby in a manger. He can't stay obscure. He can't stay anonymous for us to have peace. For, for 
Uh, Jesus, you know, there comes a point where he says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If he stays obscure, if he stays anonymous, there is no invitation like that. There is no invitation like what we read in, in Isaiah chapter 61 about him coming to the weary, the brokenhearted, the oppressed, and the weak. There's no peace for them unless Jesus reveals himself for who he is. There's no peace for sinners. There's no peace for me. Unless Jesus somehow makes that transition. And so it takes place because we desperately need peace. We not only desperately need it, I think we want it. We are created. We want peace. John Lennon wanted peace. He sang about peace quite a bit. He wanted peace. He didn't know where to find it, but he had a desire. He had a recognition within his being that we are a people who need peace. And by the way, because I'm not sure exactly when I should say this, and I don't want to forget to say it entirely. When the Bible uses the word peace in the Old Testament, is shalom. It's completeness. It has the idea of being complete, being whole. It's not just one part of your life is now settled, but it's this idea of a complete. You are a complete person, a completed person, a whole person because of who he is or what he's done. So we desperately need peace, but for peace to come, Jesus will have to distinguish or divulge himself as the prince of peace. And there's the problem. There's the rub. We all want peace. We typically don't want a prince. We recognize we need the peace. John Lennon wrote songs about needing peace, but he didn't want the prince of peace to bring it. There was a disconnect there. See, I have no problem with Jesus being the prince of peace and telling other people the way they should live their lives. The problem is when he tells me how I should live my life, how my life should be ordered, what my affection should be, where my heart's desire should be. It's when he begins commanding his lordship and his princeship over me, that that's where the rub comes in. But there's no peace apart from the prince. You can't have peace apart from its origin, the prince. Isaiah chapter 9 used words like his government, his throne, his kingdom. Talked about justice and righteousness. There's no, there's no peace apart from this person in his kingdom and his rule that will bring peace. See, it's so easy to want all the gifts of the giver and not the giver himself. But there's no peace apart from the prince. So let me transition. I I want us to consider the topic of peace within the context of the Lord conferring his blessing upon his people Israel. It's called a Levitical blessing. And you're going to find it in Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 to 27. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 114. I've actually got all the verses on the screen, so um, I invite you to turn in your Bible. I think it's always good to be familiar with the Bible and where you, should, where you could be, but I will have the words on the screen. This is a blessing that's often used in many churches in many circumstances. It was originally for the people of Israel. But the same concepts, I think, easily cross over and apply to God's people everywhere. These verses read like this. Numbers chapter 6. Starts off, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. 
You shall say to them, here's the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. In those verses three times, you have the word blessing. And the word blessing is one of those biblical words. If you've been in a church very long, uh, you're very familiar with the word blessing. It gets overused and misunderstood. In our culture, we talk about God bless you when somebody sneezes. Uh, uh, when we use the word blessing in our culture, our secular culture, it oftentimes doesn't mean a whole lot more than best wishes and good luck. But in the Bible, I can assure you, when the Lord wants his people blessed, he's not saying best wishes, get into the promised land, and good luck. It's a lot more than that. There's a lot more conferred than those best wishes. So One of the problems with the Lord's blessing is, I don't think people, I think I don't desire it as much as I ought, because I think a lot of the... A lot of what I desire most doesn't seem like it comes from God. The things that I want most, whether it's comfort or ease or my recreation or my pleasure or indulge my own selfishness or my own well-being, I want those things. And I'm not seeing a lot of that in this blessing. I'm not seeing a lot of that in this blessing because in this blessing, it kind of culminates in I'm going to put my name upon them. I'm not going to give them their every little whim and desire. It's not, what I want you to do, Moses and Aaron, what I want you to do is I want you to assemble the people and take all their prayer requests. You take, let me know all that they want me to do for them and I will do it. Now, I'm not saying those things are wrong. It's not wrong to pray for health and it's not wrong to pray for a measure of comfort, a, me- a measure of, of enjoying relationships and enjoying family. You know, when I was sick, I can, I can assure you, I was praying for the restoration of my health. I was praying that I would feel better than I was. I can assure you, that was very easy to pray. I was praying for a certain wholeness of body. But Christ didn't come just to give us wholeness of body. He came to give us himself. He came to put his name upon his people. He is the blessing more than the things that he gives to his people. Many commentators point out it's very interesting in this blessing that the Lord is repeated three times. We worship one God who reveals himself in three persons, who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Isaiah calls out, holy, holy, holy. Here we have the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And if this is the case... I'm not entirely convinced this is meant to be an allusion, allusion to the Trinity. Maybe it is. It may be my own misunderstanding or lack of appreciation. But for those that take it that way, then they want to identify the first with the Father, the second with the Son, and the third with the Holy Spirit. So that it starts, as all good things do, from the Father's benevolent, gracious will. The Lord, the Father, bless you and keep you. But it's through the person of the Son that God's grace is extended. Grace is brought near because Christ came. Grace is won because he gained victory over sin, death, and hell. Grace is ours because he rose from the grave. And then the third, the Holy Spirit, 
lifting up His countenance upon you and giving you peace, applying all that the Son has done, all that the Father has willed is brought to His people, and God's people experience wholeness, completeness, peace. Again, I'm not entirely convinced that's right, but I'm not entirely convinced it's wrong. It's, it's at least interesting to think about. Another way that people look at that blessing is, it's easily recognized as a threefold blessing, but they also recognize, some do, that these are three pairs. Because clearly there's a pair in each grouping, bless, keep, face to shine, be gracious, countenance upon you, give you peace, and that the second part, the second part of of each coupling explains the first part. So it would look a little something like this, the Lord bless you. Well, what does that mean? It means He keeps you. In the second, may the Lord make His face shine upon you. Well, what does that mean? It means He's gracious to you. And then the third, the Lord lift up His countenance upon you. What does it mean that He lifts up His countenance upon you? It means He makes you whole. He gives you peace. I think that's an interesting way to look at it. It's a possibility. Let's look at them one at a time. First of all, the Lord bless you and keep you. Charles Spurgeon, I want to get this exactly right. This is what he preached early on. No, it wasn't necessarily early on in his ministry, but it was reflecting back when he started. Charles Spurgeon said, I loved to have my grandfather's blessing when I was preaching the word in the early days. We are a people that desire blessing. We are a people that desire affirmation. We are a people that desire love. We are a people that desire something other than ourselves to affirm us. We desire blessing. Most children grow up, they desire uh, to bring pleasure to their parents, to desire their blessing, to desire their approval. That's not unusual. The Lord bless you and keep you. If God doesn't keep us, we're not kept. Uh, You maybe have seen the, it's a meme or it's a kind of a fairly famous quote by John MacArthur that says, if we could lose our salvation, we would. If it was up to me to keep myself, it would not be kept. But the Lord keep you. The Lord brings his blessing and it's because the Lord keeps us. That's the reason why we are kept. It's the only reason why we are kept. I think there are two beautiful passages in Scripture that emphasize the Lord's role in keeping His people. One is in the Old Testament. It's a psalm. It's the entire psalm. It's a short psalm. And then the second is Jesus Himself. So the psalm is 121. It looks like this. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. What a beautiful psalm that explains what does it mean, the Lord keep you. Virginia Brooks wanted that psalm read at her funeral. Uh, it's probably the only, it's the only time it's ever been specifically requested, but I can't help but read that psalm and think of Virginia Brooks, who passed away a good number of years ago, but I grew up with Virginia Brooks. There's never a time in my life where I did not know her. She was a family friend. 
And she loved Psalm 121. And the reason why she could be in the kingdom of heaven is because she was kept by the Lord. That's the only reason she was kept by the Lord. Well, Jesus also talks about keeping his own. It's hours before he's going to be arrested. It's hours before he's going to be beaten. It's hours before he's going to be nailed to a cross. And he is praying for, in this particular context, he's specifically praying for the apostles. But if I were to read more of John chapter 17, he makes it very clear, I'm not just praying for the apostles, I'm praying for those who will believe because of the apostles. They will also, his, this prayer also extends to them, he keeps them. So in John chapter 17, it reads like this. Jesus saying, all mine are yours, speaking to the Father. And yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. That's my prayer request. My prayer request is, when things get difficult, is just remove me from the situation. If, you know, if I could have a, a fast pass into the kingdom of heaven, and I could play that card at my own whim, that's my prayer request. Just get me out. But Jesus says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You know what we're kept by? We're kept by God. We're kept by His power, by His Spirit, by His grace. We're also kept by His Word. God uses His Word to keep His people. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. God uses His Word, and He uses His Spirit to keep His people. Blessing number two. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. You know, sometimes you can go to a, it could be a sporting event. Um, it could be a certain performance of a certain type. And maybe there's one child or one student in particular that at that particular moment, uh, maybe they're kind of in the limelight or they've got an important role or maybe it's a speaking part and and they're doing their thing, and you may not know that child, but sometimes you can know exactly who the parent is because their face is shining. You can tell they are so proud, so grateful that their child is up there, and do, they're doing that right now. Their face is shining. Well, in this sense, it's not exactly the same. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord's face isn't shining because we're such good people. In this case, the Lord's face is shining because of his own gracious intentions toward us. He sees what his grace is doing in us. He sees how his grace is transforming us and making, and, and his name is being put on us. And as he sees that, God's face is shining. 
because he's pleased with his work. He's pleased with the effects of his grace. He's pleased with how the transforming power of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is being integrated into our lives so that we're not the same people that we were before. His face shines because of his own grace. Well, this idea of shining is a a common image in Scripture. I'm going to give you two passages. One is one we've looked at several times already. It's Isaiah chapter 9. It looks like this. In the former time, he, the Lord, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, two tribes of Israel, very far away from Jerusalem. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in the darkness formerly have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in a land of deep darkness formerly, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." May the Lord make his face shine upon you as his face shone upon these dark lands, Naphtali, Zebulun, as his face shone upon people who were walking in darkness and he gifted them his son, the Lord's face shining. Zechariah in the New Testament, he utters a prophecy. This is before Jesus is born. Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist, a cousin of Jesus. John the Baptist will prepare the way for Jesus when he enters public ministry at the age of 30. Zechariah says these words, chapter 1, Luke. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. And you, child, speaking of his son, John the Baptist, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face shine upon you. That's exactly what Zechariah is praying. Sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who are in darkness. The Lord's face shines by his grace. The third blessing. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Very similar to the second. In the second, you've got the Lord's face shining. In this case, you've got the Lord lifting up his countenance. Upon you and bringing you wholeness, completeness, bringing you peace. Even in the midst of whatever your circumstances may be, that you can have a certain wholeness, knowing that God works all things together for good. So the way to understand this idea of lifting up his countenance or even his face shining is partly to consider the opposite. What does it look like if the Lord does not lift up his countenance upon you? There's actually a song we sing uh, throughout the year, not... It's not a Christmas song, but it's a song that gives you the idea of what does it look like if his countenance does, is not lifted up toward you. It's called the, the song's title is How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And the first verse goes like this. How deep the Father's love for us, 
how vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch. That's me. That's you. To make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. What does it mean when God blesses us and says, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you? He will never not lift up his countenance upon you because the one he turned away from was his son. And if he doesn't send his son, the Lord doesn't lift up his countenance on the likes of us, wretches. That's salvation. Friends, that's a blessing. That's a blessing. Romans chapter 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have wholeness, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, that He which has begun a good work in you will see it through to completion. His grace is not in vain. His peace will win the day. Your wholeness is assured because of Christ. God will never not lift up his countenance upon his own people. So we've got the threefold blessing which culminates in this idea of peace, which we celebrate, this fourth candle, the peace candle. Do you have any comments or questions regarding this passage or this concept of peace in Scripture? Hannah. Yeah, there's a, back when I went to Cedarville, way back in the day, late 70s, early 80s, the group Imperials was a men's quartet who was a little bit rocky, and they were illegal at Cedarville, which is kind of ironic because you'd listen to them today and you'd be like, what exactly was the problem there? But at any rate, one of the songs they sang, and it was the tenor that sang it, so Darwin, I don't know if you would know this song, but he sang, there will never be any peace until the Prince of Peace. And it's a beautiful song. I mean, all their, all their four parts were, did such a crazy good job. But uh, there will never be any peace until the Prince of... See, we want peace. I mean, lots of people sing about peace. You know, that's one of the things about Christmas that brings us together. We, we all have this common awareness. We need peace. Something's broken. Something's off. It's not clicking like it should. But if we would just fix ourselves, but that's the problem we can't. Peace comes from the prince. That's the rub. We want peace without the prince. Someone else? Jonathan and then back there. Yeah. Rule in perfect peace and righteousness and justice. Yeah. It will be administered perfectly. Yeah. Was it Terry? Peace. We have... Uh, the peace of God because we have peace with God. I think that's kind of what Nancy referred to. Anyone else? Uh, Rick in the back and then we'll close. Exactly. Exactly. It's a, such an intriguing poem that see, she brings both those together because Scripture teaches both. I think for, for a benediction to be dismissed, why don't we, why don't we go back... And sing a cappella that how deep the Father's love. Let's everybody stand.